Okay, this is from Psalm 133. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The word of the Lord. And from Acts chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem... They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write them, write them to to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual morality, and for what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. 
Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, in your kindness and in your mercy, we ask in this moment, if you, Lord, would do the thing that only you can do. Lord, we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would shine light on these words, these mysterious ancient words in your word. Lord, that you would shine light on the words that I've prepared Lord, that you would shine light, Lord, into our hearts where light needs to be shown. And would you use these words to great effects in our heart and our souls. And would you use them to stir up in us great hope tonight in our Lord Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So, listen to this list. So at first, the Holy Spirit is poured out in such a way in Acts chapter 2 that the people who are gathered in this upper room can hear the message of the gospel, but they can understand it in their own languages. And, And get this. After that, not long after that, Peter stands up and preaches. And he preaches such a powerful sermon of the resurrected Jesus that we're told that that thousands, thousands convert and become saved. And get this, this same Peter, this same Peter is able to reach and and he, and he encounters a, a lame man. He's able to reach his hand down and he's able to, to minister to this man so much so that he's able to say, pick up your mat and walk. And the man gets up and walks. Sometime later, 
this same Peter raises a girl from the dead and she comes to life. The same Peter is trapped in prison and an angel of the Lord shows up and miraculously rescues him from prison. Later, Paul, who's mentioned in the words that I just read, this this Paul character, he's stoned so much that he's at the point of death, but, but somehow they think he's dead. They drag him outside the city. He stands up and he just keeps on preaching the gospel. In other words, the the narrative of Acts, the story of Acts, is story after story of the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in ways that are defying human explanation, right? And then, perhaps, the greatest one of all, Acts chapter 15. A group of Christians are here. And another group of Christians are here, and they have a strong disagreement with one another. And listen what happens. They get in a room. They listen to one another. They listen to one another. They listen to each other's experiences. They take those experiences and compare them to what the scriptures teach. And then, I'm not making up. I just read it. You just heard me read it. And then, they're able to come away with a beautiful kind of compromise by which they can have unity together. Now, now if you don't believe that's a bigger miracle than all the things I said before... I'll just simply tell you, keep hanging around church longer. And I'm, and I'm really not even joking. See, the scriptures will teach us that, that unity within God's people is precious and it's rare and that Satan Hates it. But in Christ, it's possible. And that's what this sermon is about tonight. If you don't hear anything else that I say tonight, I want to make sure you hear this. In Christ, unity is possible. In Christ, unity is possible. And the way I'm going to try to help you see that point is really in three parts. If you like outlines in advance, if you'd like to know where the preacher is going with the thing, this is how it will unfold. And first of all, we're going to talk about the situation here. What is going on? What is all this about? What is this locking about? What is this circumcision about? What are we talking about here? What's the controversy? What's the debate? What's the decision? What's the problem? So That's what we're going to talk about first. Secondly, we're going to take a look at the process by which the Christians get in the room because I think the process by which they find unity is pretty instructive for us. Thirdly, we're simply going to ask the question, how? How? How did that happen? And just as a hint, 
It has to do with Jesus. So let's take a look together. First, let's talk about this situation. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot actually be saved. So what's happening is as Paul and Barnabas have gone out on this first missionary journey and they're preaching the gospel in all these Gentile, in other words, non-Jewish towns, Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ. It's exciting. They're receiving the Holy Spirit. They're growing in fellowship and community. The church is moving and growing and flourishing in Gentile territories and cities and towns and in lands. And Paul and Barnabas are watching it happen. They're out on a journey preaching the gospel. They're seeing it before their very eyes. But a group of Christians back in Jerusalem, back where the movement all began, who are Jewish Christians, are bothered. They're upset, and they begin to teach. They begin to sometimes send letters, apparently, basically saying, hey, listen, unless you actually take up all the stuff of the Jewish law, the rituals, the ceremonies, particular, the markers, particular circumcision. You're not really a Christian. See, what they're saying is, Jesus, yeah, sure, but, but we've got to add something. We've got to add some law-keeping, especially, especially circumcision. And I'm not going to dwell on this point very long, but the Gentile converts did not want to do that. Look at verse 2. And Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Okay, this is strong language. What it means is Paul and Barnabas were upset. They were heated. They were frustrated. They felt like it was wrong. And see, for, and it's not small. It's not a small thing to them. That's why they have a great big debate about it. In fact, if you want to read more just for your own enrichment about the whole debate, the, the book of Galatians in particular is, is about this very thing. Yes, we're told in the book of Galatians, Paul says, look, I opposed Peter in particular to his face about all of this. See, apparently there was a time in which some of the Jewish Christians were, were, were eating with some Gentile Christians. But then when another group of Jewish Christians came around, those Jewish Christians that were eating with the Gentile Christians suddenly kind of backed away and pretended like they didn't want to have fellowship with them. And Paul saw it. He was angry. He opposed Peter to his face. He, he confronted Peter about this. this is, Galatians tells this story. And, it, and it's, not a, it's not a small thing to Paul. It's not a small thing to Barnabas. They have no small dissension about it. And see, you see to them, it, 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 it undoes the logic of the gospel. And this is somewhat complicated. And there's, there's not, I can't really get into it in fullness, but, but let me put it this way. 
Paul and Barnabas believe, and this is what Paul says in Galatians, that the law, all the ceremonies, all the traditions, all the law was like a tutor that was leading, that was leading God's people to Christ. And now that Christ is here, the law has been fulfilled. And, and faith in Christ is what marks belonging to God's people, not a thing like circumcision anymore. So for Paul and Barnabas, this process has gone down where God's people have been slowly led to Jesus. And now to go back there is to go backwards in Paul and Barnabas' minds. See, the law of God is a precious good thing. But the law of God was intended to expose. It was tended, intended to show to demonstrate our great need for Jesus. And for, for these believers who have been exposed by God's law to, to hear the good news of Jesus, then to be saddled again under God's law is an offense to Paul and Barnabas. See, for Paul and Barnabas, if people are led to Christ, obedience to God will get thrown in. People, when they come to know Jesus, will want to obey him. Listen to Peter's words in verse 10. See, Peter has learned, and now he's, he's advocating at this meeting for Paul and Barnabas' position. Verse 10, now therefore, why are you putting to God to the test by placing the yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, but we believe that we will be saved through grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Peter's saying the law crushed us. It showed us our need for Jesus. They have been exposed by the law to see their need for Jesus. Let's not saddle them under its heavy weight again. Philip Melanchthon, who was a reformer, said it like this, that, that whenever we go backwards in that way, like whenever we confuse what the law was intended to do, and what faith in Christ is intended to do, and get those backwards. Philip Melanchthon says all kinds of blindness will most certainly follow. See, these Christian leaders are seeing that they're being led into a position of, of, of blindness. So that's the situation. Now let's see what happens. They call a meeting, they get in the room, they have this conversation, and then in verse 12, listen what happens. This is the process here. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened. The room got quiet, and they heard Paul and Barnabas out. The whole assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul, and they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. In other words, they get quiet and they listen. They listened to the ways in which God was moving and at work by the power of his spirit among the Gentiles. They listened to these experiences. But then, really importantly, they measured these experiences that they heard about they measured them in light of the scriptures. 
Look at verse 13. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his own name. And with this, the words of the prophets agreed. Just as it is written, after this, I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. What James is saying is, let's read the Bible together. Let's take the experiences that you're experiencing, and let's see how they match up with the Scriptures. It's a really important point. Y'all, our experiences can lie to us. We can read experiences wrongly. But they take the experiences, they read them up against the scriptures, particularly in this case, Amos chapter 9, where the prophet's saying that there was a day coming in which all the Gentiles would be brought in the family of God. And what I'm saying right now is that's happening right now with Paul and Barnabas in their ministry. In other words, James is trying to make the appeal that that we're moving toward fidelity to the tradition, not away from it. We're moving toward our tradition and our history. We're moving toward what God has always revealed in the scriptures. And that's really, 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 really important. We won't find compromise in disagreement if we're moving away from our tradition and what God has revealed but rather we find compromise when we move toward it. And then they they have a compromise. And, And here's what they decide. Look at verse 19. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from Blood. What's going on here? There's, there's probably a few things going on here. Their, their compromise involves both groups to get uncomfortable. First of all, both groups are going to change the things they eat when they're in each other's presence. This whole idea of not eating things that have been sacrificed to idols or that has been strangled or blood. See, see, the Gentiles would go to these meat markets. Most of the time, these meat markets were associated with pagan temples. So these pagan rituals would happen. These pagan rituals would happen in these temples, and these sacrifices would be made, and animals would be slaughtered, not according to kosher rules. And then that meat would just be put at the equivalent of, like, you know, um, Publix or whatever, and people would come around and they would buy that meat to eat. And that just deeply offended their Jewish brothers and sisters. It would be like this. It would be like if, if at Grace Fellowship we, we built a friendship and a relationship with someone from, say, a Muslim background. And they came to faith in Christ. And then after they came to faith in Christ, we invite them for one of our dinners, congregational dinners we have after church. And we're going to serve pork. It'd be hard for those new converts to participate in that. It would offend sort of their, everything they think about how they should eat. And that's essentially what's being said here is, is Jewish believers, Jewish believers are saying to Gentile believers, can you just help us in what we eat together so that we can be together? 
but it, it actually goes deeper than that. See, this whole idea that's all combined together, right? Things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, what has been strangled, and from blood. When you, when you add all these things together, something deeper is happening. So, you know, basically what the Jewish Christians are appealing to is, is all the things related to pagan worship. Because, see, these temple, these pagan temples, these pagan Worship rituals involved sacrificing animals, it involved sometimes drinking blood, it involved eating these foods. It often involved sexually debaucherous things as a part of this worship. And what the Jewish believers are essentially saying is, will you really, really, really walk away? Will you really walk away from your old life and walk toward this new life in Christ? Will you really do that? I think the, the point I'm trying to get you to see is, is this compromise involved discomfort from both groups. And, and what I think what I'm trying to get you to see is this is not a compromise that's kind of thin. It's more thick. This is not a first century version of, hey, group, why don't y'all just do your thing and we'll do our thing. You do you, we'll do us. It's not that. I don't know if you've ever had a, a bowl of gumbo, but if you have a bowl of gumbo from a certain part of Louisiana, it's thin and tomatoey and watery. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about gumbo from a different part of Louisiana that is thick and rich and brown and stew-like. I, I really, really thought that would help. And what we learn, what proceeds from here, is they make this decision. They decide how they're going to have fellowship together. They send a letter to talk about it. And then we end up with such a beautiful thing in verse 20. So then when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together... They delivered the letter, verse 21, and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. It goes on to say, they, they went, and they went in peace, in verse 33, and they kept on preaching and teaching the gospel. In other words, they find together through this process of listening Reading the Bible, compromise, thick compromise, not thin compromise. They find this precious thing that the New Testament will call unity. And hear me tonight, it is one of the most precious things in all the world. There, there really is nothing Nothing in this world like the unity that exists between brothers and sisters in Christ. There's nothing like it. There's literally nothing like it in all the world. You heard Hayden read it. It's a blessing. It's like oil that travels down a beard. It's, that's, a, that's an Old Testament way of saying that it just refreshes the soul. This unity 
by the way, that they find by listening to each other, reading the Bible together, and making a thick, not thin compromise. This unity that they find is, is no less of a miracle than all the miraculous things in the book of Acts. You might be saying to me, but that doesn't seem that big of a deal compared to, say, a lame man getting up and walking. I'm telling you, it's as big a deal. It's the kind of thing that only the Holy Spirit can birth. It is difficult. It would have been easier for the two groups to just, you do you, we do us, we won't be in fellowship together. That would have been easier. It would have been more efficient. It would have been less painful. See, unity is not what we think it is. We have a tendency to think unity is kind of like, oh, we're just going to always have the same opinion all the time. That's not what Christian unity is about. We tend to think unity is, well, I'll give up a lot of what I really believe deeply, and you give up a, little, a lot of what you believe deeply, and we'll arrive at this middle ground that we just don't really believe anything deeply. That's not what Christian unity is. Christian unity says, you believe what you believe deeply, and believe it more deeper still, and I will also. And we'll listen to each other, we'll read the scriptures, and we'll find ways to live in unity together. It is slow. It is painful. Christian unity has to be guarded so carefully and diligently all the time. With every interaction you have with a member of the body of Christ, in every email you send, every text message you send, every interaction you have, you've got to be guarding Christian unity. It's beautiful. And the Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ loves it. That it smells sweet in his nostrils when he sees it. The Bible would lead us to believe that Satan, and I mean that very literally, hates it. Christian unity is kind of the number one thing that completely undercuts his project to still kill and destroy. We have an adversary, the devil, the Bible teaches us, who prowls around like a roaring lion, actually looking for those among us to pick off to devour. And when we have unity in the spirit, it completely erodes that project of the devil. Doesn't that sound exciting to you to think we can undercut the work of the devil in our unity? Is that just me? So third thing. We talked about the situation, what's going on. We talked about the process by which they arrive at this beautiful thing. Here's the third thing. It's just the question, how? How did this happen? How was this possible? Joel, you're telling me that in Christ, unity is possible. How? Well, I'm telling you, it's possible because of Christ. Two things. Number one, unity is possible Unity was possible here in Acts 15, number one, because Jesus Christ personally prayed for it. In John 15 through 17, he's in the upper room with his disciples. He's teaching and he's praying and he prays. He prays for the unity of his people. And listen to me. You might even want to look me in the eye when I say this. Jesus always gets what he prays for. This is somewhat of a pastoral side note. The Bible teaches that Jesus is praying for you right now. He's mostly praying for your endurance. 
that you would have faith. That's literally another sermon for another day. But Jesus gets what he prays for. And then secondly, if it was possible because Jesus prayed for it, it also is possible, and hear me here, because Jesus purchased it. See, the scriptures teach us that when Jesus Christ goes to the cross, it says this in Ephesians chapter 2, that he destroys in his very body, like in his physical body on the cross, he destroys dividing walls of hostility between groups. Jesus goes to the cross to forgive you and I of our sin to set us free from the power of evil and sin and death. And it's because Jesus does those things for you that you can be transformed, so much so that your heart of stone becomes a living, breathing, beating heart of flesh, and therefore you become alive in such a way that in Christ, in his strength, you're actually able to be to other people what Christ has been to you. The Apostle Paul will literally say this in, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. He'll say, he'll say, be be." Kind, be, be tender-hearted, be sympathetic with one another, bear with one another in patience, just like God in Christ has done for you. And, and the Christian life, as just simple as I can tell it to you, is, is just this simple idea because Christ has done so much for us, we are now free. We are free to now do much in love and kindness and tenderheartedness toward one another. I mean, think about it. Think how patient Jesus is with you. Think how tender-hearted Jesus is with you. Think how kind Jesus is with you. Think how, I think I've already said this, patient Jesus is with you. It, it converts you. It changes you in such a way that you can be like that toward others. Just a couple more things. This is kind of straight from the pastor's heart right here, okay? You know, you know, there's really not a lot of things that really make me nervous when you think of, like, Grace Fellowship. Like, you might think it makes me nervous that I don't know where we'll worship, say, in a month from now. You might think that makes me nervous. Like, you might think the unknown of that makes me nervous. It, it does a little bit. But, but honestly, the thing that would make me, this, this pastor, most nervous is just to look in the life of our body and to just see disunity. And the reason that makes me nervous is because this text and others would teach that all the beautiful things that Jesus has for his church cannot happen without unity. They can't happen without it. Let me, let me just say this just a little more directly and, and 
forcefully maybe. But if we're called to be tender with one another, kind to one another, sympathetic with one another, patient with one another, forgiving one another, and let's say instead we're impatient with one another, frustrated with one another, holding grudges against one another, the other people around us will pick up on that and it will crush them. They'll be able to tell. When you resent the people you're called to love within the body of Christ, but even still, in Christ, you've been given grace and mercy. Our Lord Jesus even went to the cross for people who resent the people in their church family. His grace and his forgiveness and his mercy can change you and me. See, in Christ, unity is possible. So this text, I think, serves as an invitation for us together to walk into the gifts that Jesus has won for us. We won't be sorry. Let's pray together.